we were both on the road and now we're back here in Studio G. Oh, How do you feel? Yeah. You feel refreshed? Somewhat. Yeah. It's a different refreshment, but sure. Good. Yeah. Good. Well, we're going to we're going to start this one off right since this is a very special day. A little music here from a very famous film with the scene with the with the dialogue to set the set the stage here. Frame what we're listening to. Good morning, Your Highness. Good morning, Your Highness. Good morning, Your Highness. Happy birthday, Your Highness. Okay. Yes, it is my birthday. <laughs> Thank you, everyone, for all of I thought you were playing Pocahontas. <laughs> Thank you for all of the cards, for the uh, well wishes, the DMs, the contributions. A great gift, a great day from each and every one of you. I really appreciate it. Just wanted to shout y'all out for showing me all of the birthday love and also to uh, shout out our partners who show us love every single week. Uh, Schubert Club, since 1882, Schubert Club has been creating inspiring musical experiences in the Twin Cities. More on them here in a bit. Also a very special shout out and thank you to Salastina. Salastina is classical music's wingman. By day, they're world-class performers and studio musicians who've played on your favorite films. By night, they're on a mission to broaden the definition of what classical music was, is, and can be. More at salestina.org, and I'll speak to uh, more of their upcoming programming in a bit. But, you know, it's it's not only been a great uh, birthday day for me, but also a very pensive one, one that I've been doing some thinking. Okay. It got into a little bit of the birthday blues a little bit. You know, it seems like every birthday you have the almost crying fit over something. (laughs) But um, no, I'm talking about me. Oh, okay. <laughs> I'll get more into that in the triloquy. But again, I mentioned we were both on the road doing our uh, various things. So I thought that we would, uh, in the introduction today, get into some of the music that accompanied our uh, various journeys. I want to get us started by shouting out Brandy Waller Pace, member of the Triloquy family, mm-hmm. and uh, who put together the Fort Worth African American Roots Festival. We've talked about roots plenty. We've talked about twangy guitars and banjos and those sorts of things. But seeing that music, and not I'm using that word seeing intentionally, not just hearing, but seeing that music in the context of blackness was really incredible for me. Has and it changed your mind? It, it's definitely, well, it hasn't changed my mind about the status quo of roots and country and folk because the folks who be in those spaces are the folks who be in those spaces, you know? And it really just affirmed what we talk about all the time conceptually. I think conceptually people understand the black origin and the black roots of things like the banjo and, and Americana, right. but seeing it in action was really, really phenomenal. One of the people that I was incredibly grateful to meet was Dr. Angela M. Wellman. She's actually a trombone player, but in studying Black music and uh, Black uh, history as it relates to American music, found her way to the banjo. So she, Hmm. you know, says that she's not a banjo player. She, you know, repeats that all the time, but really ends up creating some really fun aesthetics that speak to that American spirit and, uh, and just, again, makes it obvious how blackness is at the root of that. So here's a little bit of uh, Angela M. Wellman playing this minstrel banjo of hers. This tune is Michael Row Your Boat Ashore. Thank you. 
played something for me like that, let's say 10 years ago, if you did, I would be ready to run, you know, I would, <laughs> I would be ready to go the other way. Mm. But again, seeing that aesthetic in the context of blackness, and not only just from that historical perspective, but really from the uh, contemporary aspect of decolonizing roots and decolonizing the banjo and remembering the true history of it, incredible experience for me. And then, of course, I co-hosted a, a panel with Rissy Palmer. Shout out to Rissy Palmer, hey, where we were getting into some of the, you know, the, the black conversations mm -hmm. uh, about roots and country. It really mirrored all of the conversations we have here. They're not talking about the Met. They're mm. talking about the Grand Ole Opry, mm. you know, but it's it was just really fascinating, a great learning experience for me. I can't wait to go back to Fort Worth next year. That is a, such an interesting sound. What's the What would the vintage of that banjo be? Well, again, it's a minstrel banjo. So it's what the banjo was before the blackness was bred out of it. You started getting higher pitches. They put it back on the banjo, you know, tuned it in a more Western way. And then now you know, you have the instrument that we tend to think about the banjo being, but that was one of the conversations, just mm. how the banjo itself was a black instrument and the blackness was bred out of it to give us the instrument that we know today. I, I, I can't go deep into it because I'm not that type of expert, but mm -hmm. these are just, that's an example of some of the things that I was learning sure. at this festival, really incredible stuff. Anyway, that, that that's one of, of my picks. What were you, uh, what, what's, what's some of the stuff that was accompanying you over, over our little Break, not break. I had about 10 hours of highway time in the car. Mm -hmm. And I went through so many different playlists and down so many different rabbit holes, all the way back to Misunderstood, Pink's release. Because, mm. you know, like, uh, you've got people who are on the uh, Britney Spears team and those who are on the Christina Aguilera sure. team. Sure. I was on Team Pink. Mm, okay. Yes, I was. <laughs> and there was a track that came across that was... I don't know. It, you, you can find your own meaning in the lyrics, right? Sure. And, and that happened when I was listening to Misery. Shadows are falling all over time. Another night in this blues got me down. I sure could use some It's interesting because me thinking about the roots and the banjo and all that stuff and how it evolved into different sorts of musics, it's pretty obvious that Pink is utilizing the blues, that Pink is utilizing black music there. I heard that's a sermon of sorts. I That that organ in the background, the B3, oh, yeah. the guitar with the tremolo turned all the way up. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I could hear that being done by a praise band. Oh yeah, for sure. Um, and you know, like I said, you, f you can find your own things inside the lyrics. And there was uh, a part at the end, oh misery, tell me why does my heart make a fool of me? Seems it's my destiny for love to cause misery. Guess it's all meant to be for love to cause misery. And I was thinking about Radar. You love your melancholic bag. Sometimes, sometimes. <laughs> I was just thinking, you know, I was thinking about Radar because, you know, anytime you get a pet, you've just acquired a mini tragedy, as George Carlin would say. So, yeah. and the way that she was singing, I was just feeling like, yeah, in it, feel it all. 
Hallelujah. Yeah. Hallelujah. Speaking of feeling it all. So by the time I got back home on Sunday, because, you know, me and Dell were in New York for a, a week mm-hmm. and then I landed uh, back in Minnesota for all of seven hours just to get back on a plane down to Texas to this Roots Music Festival. So by the time I got back on Sunday, I just needed a few hours. I needed four or five hours just to not do anything, to just sort of defrag. I uh, smoked a little smoked a little green and I was trying to think about what's so what's some music that is gonna like do me right now. I don't want to get too deep, you know, start listening to something that's gonna get me into my head and maybe even more uh, t- you know, too laid back, a little mm-hmm. bit too sw- mm-hmm. swifty, but what's going to sort of keep me awake? What's some music with uh, some restraints on it? And that's when I was thinking, okay, well, let me just go to sh- some straight up Western classical music. What can I listen to that's very much within the box that's going to be entertaining to me, you uh, uh, stimulating for my mind, but um, you know, still uh, with some restraint about it. I was also thinking about Women's History Month. So who's a woman composer who I hadn't listened to in a little while, but that's very much in the box. And of course, the first name that came to my mind was Amy Beach. I remember oh. back at uh, my first radio job at WUOT, I used to like airing her piano concertos. Sure. So I decided to go ahead and put on one of her piano concertos, be in my mind, but still be awake and I get you know, too much. And I started it and it has this mysterious opening that, you know, definitely just got me deep in my mind. It's an 18 minute opening movement, but it was a good ride. And as much as we talk about decolonizing classical music, you know, as we always will, listening to Amy Beach's first piano concerto was a great reminder of why there are instances where the Western classical is appropriate and and is of use and is entertaining okay. it was a great listen for me and i enjoy revisiting it to sort of rest from all the travel Once the piano comes in, it really gets exciting. They're like the really uh, uh, crunchy, not crunchy as in dissonant, but crunchy as in like really banging on the piano and mm-hmm. loud. Of course, the more tranquil. I don't know. It was a it was a, a really cool ride. Every every now and again, even Garrett McQueen returns to Western classical music. But Amy nice. Beach is, was American, you know, so we can right. talk about early American uh, classical music, at least how it uh, iterations of it from Western Europe in the United States. Anyway, yeah. in any uh, anything instrumental. Instrumental, anything classical on your uh, on your here's and there's? <laughs> not <laughs> much. Going around? No, not much. Uh, but I can tell you that my algorithm obviously figured out that I've been experimenting with classical music okay. and more uh, contemporary treatments of it because I came across Cookie Kawai. Yeah, I'm unfamiliar. It, okay, there's a a song that she, a track she has called Violin. Uh, I believe 2020 is when it came out. And, there's violin in the track. And uh, I'm sorry, she she was signed in 2020. Violin is her new track. Okay. Dear Silas has a feature on it, under two minutes, and it is fun front to back. Okay. Four. 
pressure with a bag full of pre-rolls No fear in the crowd full of freak hoes Feel brave as I walk to the stage and I tell them to behave as I put them in a daze I been bold when I been bad, bitch mad when I give a man whiplash I can talk your bait as a quick cash, sexy walk my way to a big bag I hit the bank and I cash out, same way I hit the booth and I lash out No, I ain't have fear for the passion, gonna work from the first to the last shit Do a little lap dance to the black man, let him hit it from the backside with a backhand Front side looking at it with his eyes wide, now anytime I feel like the right time you know what I love? People are going to have to go online and look at the music video. I love that you have full-fledged twerking and full-fledged violin playing. That's right. Like th- these people are Full playing. Full frontal that. violin. <laughs> yep. Had, was this a repeater or something? They this kind of at least six times <laughs> on the way back. So, but her style though. You know, she's got that all that confidence and swagger in her lyrics, uh-huh. but her delivery is so unperturbed. <laughs> you know, and I love a that. A true queen. Yeah. She's just like, oh, yeah, okay, I see you, right? But, uh, and then Dear Silas's feature, what he uh, he says that at one point, I'm saucing. What's that? Saucing? I yeah. mean, that, I'm I'm gliding. I got money. I'm, oh, okay. You know, I'm, I'm doing good. That, that's what I believe anyway. You know, I am 36 now, so maybe, <gasps> the, maybe the slang is, you know. <laughs> you dear sweet child of summer. Me. But, you know, we're, when we think about Women's History Month, I think we have to be careful not to silo or pigeonhole our celebrations by just censoring one thing or one aesthetic. You right. know, the, the contributions of women as, you know, we have explored since we've been gone is vast. The breadth of it is huge, especially when you think about this idea of classical music and the way that we think about it. Expanding that perspective, you know, at the end of the day, only creates a path toward more celebration. We have more types of things and and more uh, women to celebrate because we have that more equitable, that more decolonized approach to this thing called music, certainly Mm. classical music. And that's what we're here to do on this little low podcast, a couple men celebrating women during Women's History Month to keep the dialogue going. That's pretty good, right? I like that one. <laughs> All right, let's get into it. Scott Blankenship. And this is Triloquy. Thanks so much for tuning in to returning listeners. We couldn't do it without you. Thank you for your continued support, your continued listenership, and everything you do to keep this podcast relevant and exciting and uh, in the position that it is in this world of so-called classical music. I couldn't thank you enough. I want to send a special shout out to one of the homies, Matthew, one of the listeners. I met him over the weekend and this, uh, he was talking about, he was trying, he was kind of pulling my leg uh, as I was, as we were hanging out last night, we were talking about, you know, going out to the gay bars and that whole era of our lives as I'm wrapped up in my big thick sweater, sort of just uh, collected on the couch, just cozy. Mm-hmm. And Matthew said, okay, so you're entering your senora era. You know, <laughs> Wait, this, what? this is this is not the time when you're out running wild. You're more of the senora now. So, okay. <laughs> so shout out to Matthew and shout out to all of the listeners and supporters. We couldn't do this without you. To new listeners, if this is your first time checking out the Triloquy podcast, Triloquy is a show that takes the phrase classical music and approaches it in a way that is more inclusive of different stories, different aesthetics, different dialogues, all toward the ultimate goal of decolonizing that phrase called classical music. For more information on the Triloquy podcast, to uh, contribute and to check out past opuses, 
go to our website, T-R-I-L-L-O-Q-U-Y dot O-R-G. In addition to your support, support from Triloquy comes from Schubert Club. They have an upcoming show on April 13th, one of their free courtroom concerts titled Speaking in Tongues. What do you know about speaking in tongues? Because that's something I, that you uh, have any. <laughs> I do have some background. <laughs> but, it's, but it's not the Holy Ghost sort of speaking in tongues. Speaking in Tongues uh, by the Schubert Club is going to feature Soa Mensa, Enrique Toussaint, Mark Anderson, and Gao Hong. So this is a, cool. a collection of all different sorts of cultures and styles and backgrounds together in, in one show. The uh, program hasn't been announced yet, but the date has been Thursday, April 13th. So if you are in the Twin Cities area, be sure to check that out. You can find more information at Schubert.org. Also, huge shout out and thanks to Salestina. Coming up on April 8th is their happy hour number 112 featuring Leela Dance. Uh, join them for a stunning and colorful preview of their collaboration with Leela a dance collective, a Hindustani classical dance troupe. That's something that sounds extremely interesting. So you can check that out on Saturday, April 8th at the Pompeium Room at the Doheny Mansion. More information on that at salestina.org. We have the composer Thea Musgrave in the third movement this week. What an honor to uh, speak with her. More on Thea Musgrave here in a bit. Uh, more music by women uh, as for our uh, continued celebrations of Women History Month yeah. coming up in the second movement. I have one of those thoughtful, pensive, emotional birthday triloquies for us this mm, week. Boy. We're going to get into that in the final movement, but for now, we're going to jump into movement one. So not long ago, maybe a month ago, you brought in an accidental from over in England where they got people to behave a little bit by playing Beethoven. Yeah, Coin Fight was the uh, name of that <laughs> right, opus. Right. Yeah. So it looks like that has uh, come over here to this side of the pond. Yes, and the angle is different. Okay, give it to us. Right, so I am reading from NBCLosAngeles.com. What accidental are you giving it? I am going to give this a sharp. Okay. Yeah, and uh, the headline is, Why This LA Metro Station Cranked Up the Classical Music. Metro queued up the classical music as part of a public safety pilot program at the troubled Metro Westlake slash MacArthur Park Station. Mm -hmm. So, um, I understand that MacArthur Park at one point was rough. So when I lived in Los Angeles, was when I was in grad school, that was definitely a, a no-go. Speaking of running around and going to the gay bars, one evening I was one of the older ones at the age of 24, running around, catching the bus, hopping on the train here to there to get to uh, West Hollywood, and we had to walk past MacArthur Park. And it was tense. It, mm. it definitely felt like I shouldn't have been there. So I can only imagine what it's like to be at a, a metro station there after dark. Maybe maybe something's happened. Maybe the neighborhood is different now. But back in 2011, 2012, that was a no-go zone for sure. The rousing classical music bra uh, blaring from speakers at Mestra, Metro's Westlake MacArthur Park is hard to miss. Some startle, more startling than soothing at times, booming sounds fill the cavernous halls as riders board and exit trains on the system's B and D lines. So what is this about? Are they just trying to educate the people? or <laughs> is um, they're, they're, they're using it. I'm going to have to scroll down into the article to find the line. But they want to create a more positive experience, a safer experience. Okay. They want a calmer <laughs> experience. Sure. Um, as they say here, we're uh, putting the particulars of our public safety plan in place with a focus on improving security, customer care, and cleanliness. So basically, they said, we want this to be a place where you can feel comfortable, but not for too long. Mm -hmm. 
to keep it moving, but while you're here, <laughs> right? And and Western classical music is how they're doing. Seems that. to be the way. Yeah, and I thought, mm, is this an unintentional metaphor for what? Well, meaning that you know, if for some folks you get excited about listening to classical music and then the interest tapers off mm, for whatever okay. reason. All right, you said it. <laughs> is it wrong? Is that wrong? Well, you know, one thing that is interesting to note is that apparently there has been a reduction in crime or a reduction in whatever by the statistics that are uh, put right. on this article. They see that so far they have seen a reduction of twenty percent of violent. Violent crime. Now it's not station. just the music that has changed. They, right. you know, amped up uh, what lighting they said, and mm-hmm. a, I guess a security presence and and security cameras. Yep. We can't argue that the crime is down based on what they put here. Sure. Is it fair to really attribute so-called classical music to that, even as just a a variable, just as a as something that contributed? to this reduction in crime. I was going to ask you the same thing because based on the responses that they were getting from people they interviewed in the transit hub, mm-hmm. they did, they were unbothered either way. One of them here says, eh, it's a little dramatic, but it's fine. Yeah, and that was funny to me. Like, <laughs> yeah. so, so what are they playing over there, Wagner or something? He said it's a little dramatic. He said, they're, they're doing a lot, but I guess it's okay. No. Um, <laughs> Uh, and then another one said, uh, it's wild that classical music is really a tactic that they're using. I mean, yeah, we're, we're seeing it. And we saw it in England, uh, Wales, rather. Yeah. Uh, it's over in L.A. Maybe that's going to be more of a thing. You know, we were talking about over dinner the fact that they closed a transit station here in Minneapolis. Yeah, and like, what was once like a, you know, popping part of town. I wouldn't say it's not popping anymore, but it used to be very trendy, very the place, very oh, much the place to go. Hipster central. And, and now crime seems to be so much of a, a thing that they closed the station. I wonder if putting classical music, blaring that over loudspeakers over there would make a difference. Is this more of a preventative measure, something that could fix it? I don't know. If, if we're seeing success and, and, you know, we can have the conversation about what is crime, how we're defining that and what are the, you know, all of that. I, I hear all of that. And if this tactic has done something in Wales, if we see a 20% reduction in violent crime in uh, Los Angeles over at MacArthur Park, maybe in places like Minneapolis, it it should be tried out. If you want to find out if it really does have an impact, you're going to have to do some sort of study where classical music is no longer a part of the equation. Sure. And you find out if the reduction, you know, you run the test again and find out if the reduction was still there. Because even within, I get the feeling that they're they're saying that classical music, this will be great. You know, people mm-hmm. will like this. You know, it'll, it'll feel uh, upscale maybe. But even within the article, there is a caption under one of the photos that threw me off. It says a Los Angeles metro station is blasting classical music as a way to combat crime and discourage people from sleeping at the station. Mm, that's interesting. Okay, so there's the negative tip, right? Because, right, because not everybody has a place to sleep. And if this is a warm, safe place and it's not bothering nobody. See? Um, but, I, but I just wonder what is at the root of this, of right? the use of this music. I mean, you just said maybe people will think it's more upscale and and not want to, you know, be a, a rabble rouser or anything. Is is that what it is, or a, a deterrent thinking that you don't belong or you shouldn't hang out in a place that sounds like this? I, I wonder what the what the actual thing is. What, I, what the yeah. I am hearing a little bit of column A and a little bit of column B mm-hmm, because it like like we said when 
we talked about this as it applied to whales, this can get problematic real quick. So mm-hmm. if you just, you know, you talked about a control for this experiment, fine, let's put on the shoot 'em up rap music over there. So are they going to start to <laughs> associate oh. that with a rise in crime or, you know, it's, it's a double-edged sword because we talk about decolonizing classical music. So this classical music is making people behave. You know, I was talking about the Amy Beach music within the lines to keep right. keep me awake a little bit, you know, <laughs> after I was smoking. So is it that? Is it is it real? What we talk about, the confines of this music manifesting in people just being more buttoned up, even unknowingly so? It's it's a very yeah. interesting thing that that's happening with this. I don't know. Like you said, the idea is to... Make it comfortable for spending amounts of time transitioning, not hours long loitering. We are monitoring the volume of the music as well as customer feedback. I would love to go through and go, hey, tomorrow, can you hit uh, the second movement of Goretzky's <laughs> Symphony of Sorrowful Songs for me right about now? Well, no, he's at the volume as well. So is the classical music up real loud to keep him? Or? <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. It's anyway, just fun to talk about. Yeah, just very, very interesting. What about more private situations like blaring classical music in neighborhoods as a deterrent or as a a way to calm people down maybe to prevent crime i don't know are, are you ready to put some loudspeakers <laughs> out, out out on your sidewalk and see what happens hey that could be a thing you know and if somebody calls the police on you for playing some classical music that be hey that'll be a conversation as well so <laughs> what a party so go for it to dj classical music i can put on something for 20 minutes and then leave <laughs> anyway well just a, a little interesting tidbit there it's it's happening in wales it's happened in los angeles classical music is calming the people down as is being measured by statistics and, and and all that and upping the um uh the wow factor of your local transit hub what do you think about putting some of that uh banjo music that i used to be so afraid of in the in the transit stations do you think that would <laughs> or maybe people uh, let me not be problematic or <laughs> or stereotypical I'm, i i was going to say maybe people will start wearing overalls and taking off the shoes and all that at the train station <laughs> but again nice. there, there, there's something about the orchestral sound that it, that just does something to people I, I i'm with you i think it would be interesting to see what other aesthetics would uh what what impact that would have you know put some country music in the station mm-hmm. we we can talk mm-hmm. about the rap music y'all gonna be problematic or maybe some funk or some R and B make make it a little sexy in the in the transit station I don't I don't know this 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 whole phenomenon is quite interesting we'll we'll, we'll see if it makes it here to Minneapolis maybe it'll make it to a a city near you classical music and public spaces to prevent crime together at last <laughs> all right well we're gonna uh, transition out of this with a, a sort of transportation inspired piece when i was thinking about a piece of music that we could transition out of for this i, I thought about john adams's hallelujah junction mm. over dinner we also had uh on the on the big screen just in the background those uh, road trips, like uh, uh, people will drive across the state of Utah or something with a dash cam on, and we can just watch it and pretend like we're in the car or whatever. Okay. Well, Hallelujah Junction is about, I forget what state, I think it's Colorado maybe, about this, where where two highways converge. It's not a lot there, but the beauty of it, the natural beauty of it inspired John Adams to write a piece that that mirrored it. So anyway, all of that together got me thinking about this tune called Hallelujah Junction, a 1996 composition by John Adams. Here's the tail end of it to get us to our next accidental.
you know, I wonder what would be uh, the impact of putting a live chamber music ensemble or something at, at these stations. Like Interesting. These, these musicians want to have a community impact. They want to do outreach. They want to do all that. All right, go to the hood and play your violin and, and see what's up. You know, <laughs> busking quartet style i mean hey that 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 would that would be interesting to see you know the impact of live music in these spaces maybe people would feel less uh likely to snatch a purse or to stab Mm. somebody or Mm. or whatever if i don't know like but but it's again i think this is just a very fast i've never would have thought of this and it's happening in multiple places at this point in multiple countries on multiple continents so like i said we'll see how that develops classical music is something to make the people safer. All right. Well, uh, our, <laughs> our next accidental here um, uh, is coming from Opera Wire. Man, I'm just going to go ahead and, and, and give this the flat. And, and let, before I get into this, let me say this. You, you have talked about me being in more of a statesman era. You know, again, Matthew talking about my senora era. But as much as I like try to be nice and, and paint things positively, it's really hard to do that. There's a challenge to do that when the name Anna Natrebko comes into the mix. Just for the people who mm-hmm. haven't been with us, why is Anna Natrebko a name that I, you know, just have to close my eyes and shake my head a little bit based on what we've read and 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 uh, reported here on Triloquy? What era? <laughs> so you said she's had multiple eras. She has. Okay, we'll, has. we'll give it a little um, bit of it. To well, us. you know, there's the blackface. She says that uh, you know, in 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 the operas where it's called for, it's absolutely necessary, and she stands by it. Um, her uh, some of her album covers have gotten very close to other name whatever face right you know, from you know makeup and effects that she's done. Most recently was that uh, she did not denounce Putin and the their invasion of Ukraine. Mm-hmm. And in fact, she was, you know, very pro-Putin shortly before the the invasion. Right. So I just want to lay that as the groundwork. Yeah. I'm not trying to pick on this lady, but the track record is there. And now there's something that's been hitting the news wires that involves her. I'm reading here again from Opera Wire. It says, the Metropolitan Opera has been ordered by an arbitrator to pay soprano Anna Netrebko more than $200,000 for performances it canceled last year when Peter Gilb distanced himself from, quote, Putin-supported artists. The arbitrator in a decision issued last month that had not been previously reported ruled that the Met would be obligated to compensate Netrebko for 13 canceled performances including appearances in Don Carlo this season and La Forza del Destino and Andrea Chenier next season. So I wonder, first of all, if any of these shows would have included any blackface. So is that why she mad? Because she can't Ooh. go on stage with a black face and a and a nappy braided wig like <coughs> she had the nerve of doing months ago. I it's don't... just maddening to think about why we say her name. It, uh, I, I just think about those aesthetics and it's hard for me not to get a little tense. Yeah. So of course, when I hear about her getting a check, mm-hmm. <laughs> I'm extra tight, you mm-hmm. know, getting paid not to perform. When you first read the headline or just the story, the Met writing her a check, what, mm-hmm. what, what were your reactions? Not surprised. I said, sounds about right. Hmm. Um, I immediately thought there's probably some sort of, uh, for lack of, knowing the terminology, some sort of a cancellation clause right. or something right. or a release mm-hmm. that will get one or the other entity out of the group. And yeah, the, usually it's agreed upon. There's some sort of a, a dollar amount. What I do not agree with, 
was the additional $400,000 in fees that she expected because they just sort of talked about it. Now, you didn't sign nothing. If if you went ahead and made plans on something that was just numbers in the air, that's on you. Mm-hmm. So at least she didn't walk away with more than half a million. It says here the Met did not comment on the specifics of the ruling, but defended its decision to cancel Netrepko's performances. So we talk about cancel performances. It makes me think about so-called cancel culture. What do you think about classical music, you know, institutions like the Met getting in the business of the social politics of canceling performances because this artist believes this or or says that. I think it's important to return to the conversation of, is it appropriate for a, an arts institution to bar its doors to someone because of an opinion? I think they definitely have that power. Yeah. Oh, they, of and course, have the power. Sure. Yes, but where, I guess, where do we, because if, if Anna Netrebko said, okay, I don't think there's anything wrong with blackface, there's another level of, of conversation when we talk about standing behind a, a ruler who has invaded a country who's responsible for the death of children, for mm-hmm. goodness sake. You know, so mm-hmm. I, I guess really the question is, where do we draw the line when it comes to arts institutions not allowing certain artists in the space because of beliefs or statements and that sort of thing? It's right along the lines of where do you put your money? Mm-hmm. You know, wh- Who do you support with your money and who do you align with business-wise? And I think more and more arts organizations are going to start reading the room and saying, okay, we can't, uh, we, we have, if, if we want to continue to grow our, our audience, mm-hmm. we're going to have to uh, align ourselves with artists that align with the audience that we're trying to create. I think you're going to see more and more of that. And if I were Anna, I'd be like, well, snap, I'm going to go over to the Riviera and hang out for a couple of days. You know, you got $200,000 in right. your pocket. Go home. Right. I mean, it, again, back to that festival that I went to down in Fort Worth, one of the artists that was on uh, the panel that Rissy and I uh, uh, co-hosted was Jake Blunt. Shout mm. out to Jake Blunt. Yeah, I follow him. He He got on a huge rant about how when the Grand Ole Opry allowed somebody on stage. Or, Morgan Wallen. Okay, yeah, but he, he was the one like shouting the N-word out and all that stuff. So now for Jake Blunt, the Grand Ole Opry is a place that has lost all of its you know, respect. I don't want to perform there X, Y, and Z. Mm-hmm. Maybe Peter Gelb was trying to avoid the opera version of that. You know? Could be. It's a shame that the blackface was not enough. <laughs> you know? Right. I'll, I'll, I'll say that, but personally... Again, I I go back and forth because I don't want to shit on anybody, you know, mm-hmm. but at the end of the day, I think it was appropriate for uh, the Met to make that decision. And if they got to write the check, they got to write the check. But I suppose that's a way of just noting that they really mean the work. So and, and they mean it all the way to having the penalty of of paying $200,000 to somebody. Sure. But now also let's let's put a pin in what you just said. Uh, hopefully. You said it's too bad the blackface wasn't enough? Yeah. Okay, hold on to that thought, and let's see what the story is a couple months down the road if it morphs, if it changes to also include that so that they can sort of prop themselves up. You know what I'm saying? Yeah, yeah. Um, But at the same time, um, maybe we're seeing some positive shifts from management like Gelb. Perhaps? Let's talk a little bit about this pay or play sort of thing that 
you know, has opened the door for Anna to receive this money. So just ensure, and I'm not a lawyer, I don't get into all of the nuts and bolts, but you know, from my days as a musician, the understanding was if I'm booked for a gig, whether it happens or not, I get paid because Mm -hmm. I shouldn't be penalized for something that happens, you know, with the weather or, or at the hall or or those sorts of things. Mm -hmm. So I can definitely back it as a thing that protects artists but it being utilized in this way seems sort of like a bent or a or a slant that i I think maybe shouldn't apply when you when again when we're talking about war crimes and and all that stuff and artists who are connecting themselves to it the pay or play is a safety net it's also a loophole in in this case i don't don't know it's it's hard to justify this uh, uh this regulation if it can be used to do what we're seeing here, to pay this woman all this money because she had an opinion that's problematic. And now, you know, it's, it's something, it's something to think about. So you're saying that the language in the contract should reflect what is a cancelable offense. And again, in this article, you can read that the Mets justification was that on an Atrepco went against their code of conduct, but I guess there need to be in the future more lines in the contract that say, if you break the code of contract, the pay or play regulation is canceled and, and you don't get any oh, money. Oh, know? I see what you're saying. Yeah. Yeah. I, yeah. I agree with that. Mm, sure. Mm, mm. But um, I, I don't know. As you said that you, you thought that it was just being used as a a loophole. A, a loophole. A loophole. Yeah, Seymour, I don't, I don't know if I follow that Well, because it, I, I guess really what I'm getting at is this feels more like principle than need. It's one thing to you know pay a second bassoonist his $1,500 whatever because you canceled or, or something happened, but paying a, a world-famous opera singer $200,000, first of all, I don't think she got a mortgage that she worried about. Unfortunately, I don't think two hundred thousand dollars would make or break her career. Maybe it would. I don't know her pocketbook, but at the end of the day, this feels more like posturing than protection of musician wages, protection of artists' livelihood. She'll work elsewhere. There'll be places for her to work. So, and that's what's sad. So, would 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 canceling those performances over the blackface be based on principle or? I. That that's a good question because that would really show black people that the Met is not gonna put up See? with that sort of thing, you yes. know, and, and create that track record that you always talk about. Yep. I appreciate that they drew the line in the sand when it come when it came to, you know, supporting Putin or the war or whatever. I wasn't there. I don't know what was said, but for me, like I said, and I hate to harp on that blackface, but for me, it's such an obvious wrong. It's such an obvious evil. I wish that was at the front of this conversation, right. yeah. you know, and 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 now let's, you know, see her double down on that as she had and demand this money because she doesn't think blackface is a problem anyway. It's, it's just it's it's webs and webs of right. just mess every time her name comes up. <laughs> I, I do see uh, what you're talking about, but at the same time. I have to uh, give a a little round of applause to Gelb for saying, you know, this we didn't think it was morally right to paint a treb kill anything considering her close association with Putin. I mean, it's it's not the stance that you originally wanted, but it's it's a stance. I'll, I'll give I'll give uh, Peter Gelb that 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 much. <laughs> hey, that's, that's that been, much applause. Better than nothing. Anyway, look. And I know I I keep beating around this bush. I feel weird, especially at this point, 
in my life, this era of my life, just really pointing the fingers and throwing daggers at any individual. But I think as an industry, we have the obligation to just name the wrongs. Mm, and if there mm-hmm. are individuals who are not only doubling down on the wrongs, but still benefiting financially to that degree, there are folks who don't make that in two years. Right. You know, some people don't make that two hundred thousand dollars in three or four years. You know, and she's just getting that check written to her that you know the the arts has a lot to deal with there's a lot to dismantle and and uh and dis, uh, just deconstruct if we can at least talk about it and normalize not being afraid to say these people's names and to and to name the the wrongs that are done maybe we can get somewhere um and you know the met again a little bit of applause to them for really not allowing certain things in right. their space and there's always more room to go. Let's continue to have the dialogue. I'm going to chant for Anna Trepko. I think one day she's going to realize just how wrong all of this stuff. She's going to take that $200,000. She's going to donate it to Black Lives Matter and just make a complete 180. I'm going to speak that into, a, in, into an existence. I can't that, wait. That, that sounds like something that's going to happen, right? All right. I can't wait. Well, uh, obviously, I'm not going to share anything about Anna Trepko, but one of the uh, up and coming stars in opera uh, that I wanted to highlight as we uh, transition into the second movement here is a woman named Rayanne Bryce Davis. I've worked with her on the Black Opera Alliance and other collaborations, uh, has uh, performed at the Met, is uh, uh, having uh, more Met performances in the coming season. Just huge congratulations to her. I found a collaboration that uh, she did with an artist named Shafali Ranti. She is a, a Bangladesh uh, a visual artist. And uh, if you go on uh, YouTube, check the link in the description of uh, the visuals were filmed by a Ukrainian cinematographer named uh, or uh, the Mibro Production Company uh, of, of Ukraine. So uh, a woman led, woman focused collaboration here in celebration of International Women's Day and an example of some of the professionals in the arts who aren't wearing blackface, who aren't being problematic, who aren't doubling down or not speaking out against uh, war and war crimes. There is some good happening in the industry. So in, in addition to pointing out the wrongs and really naming that, it's also important to shine a light on the positive. So that's what we're going to do here, a collaboration here between Ray and Bryce Davis and Shafali Ranti to get us into our second movement. by Margaret Bonds with words by Langston Hughes. The pianist in that performance was Jean-Minette Sillier. So just a, a really incredible example of the positive. I'm also seeing, Scott, more cross-disciplinary collaborations in the arts. I have something coming up at ACO that is uh, a string orchestra and dance. You know, here we have Mm. uh, opera and visual art. I think that's another one of the evolutions that we see and that we need to lean into in so-called classical music, connecting it to the other arts that are going to 
get people interested, you know, give people more stimulus. The to, spectacle. Yeah, yep. yeah. But we're here in uh, the second movement where Scott and I are going to share a little bit of music that we've, spent some, that we've been spending some time with. I'm getting tongue-tied here. So among the many things that I ha have been up to, last week, uh, the American Composers Orchestra had a concert at Carnegie Hall. It, it included music by uh, Carlos Simon and just, just all sorts of really incredible new music. And one world premiere uh, of a work by Khaki King and DJ Spar. I would, it was called Modern Yesterdays. Mm. I would share the piece, just such an incredible work that isn't uh, recorded yet, at least not for public consumption. But um, I didn't know the name Khaki King, an incredible uh, guitarist, uh, plays electric guitar. And in the tune, um, Modern Yesterdays, in the concerto, there were projections in the theater, and the projections also showed themselves on this huge white guitar that she was playing. It was just a really awesome spectacle, you know, mm. as, as you say. So I've, I was, you know, doing some research because, you know, catching up, I hadn't heard of, of Khaki King, and I found a tune of hers called the surface changes and i think that really mirrors what she was doing with in modern yesterdays with the projections on the guitar of course we can get into some of the meanings of this idea of the surface changes but aesthetically and visually it's a really cool track i uh, encourage everyone to check out uh, the link in the description to uh, check out the youtube video but even just the audio is really really incredible here's a little bit of it by khaki king the surface changes Hall, but I think it still really mirrors the general aesthetic and the idea of that solo guitar. And if you can just imagine orchestra backing that, you know, mm -hmm. some sweeping strings and some ornamental woodwinds and, you know, some exclamations by the brass and percussion, really incredible stuff happening in the world of new music. I'm, I'm just you know, th there's a lot of hard work <laughs> that goes into my job with the American Composers Orchestra, but moments like that is where it all seems to pay off. Just getting to hear works like those performed for the very first time, I think it's a glimpse into the future of orchestral, the now, and I shouldn't even say the future, the now of orchestral music and what this thing really could be if we would just give more room to, to new music. We talk a lot about how now... Um pedal effects are just part of musicians arsenals yep. uh, in particular the loop pedal mm -hmm. did she use one it looked like she was just playing oh okay. you know for and I'm, I'm not an electric guitarist maybe there was something going on but mm -hmm. it was uh just curious a, a, aesthetically it was it was really brilliant so shout out to shout out to khaki king who you got for us this week well this is a another uh woman fronted band that came up on several playlists uh you actually commented that uh you heard this song a lot played by me yeah that's because it makes it onto a lot of playlists that i put together i just never get tired of it mm -hmm. and you know how you can listen to lyrics but you don't hear it oh yeah i heard some of the lyrics while i was actually 
doing the thing that she was talking about. Circle around your hometown. You once knew that you'd never regret that you left. <laughs> Does and, that get a boom? Are you, and, is yeah, that a dig? And, but, uh, is, is that shade? It's just something that it, <laughs> I, people ask if I would ever move back, and I just don't think I could. Yeah, You know, it's it's far too different. I'm different. And I don't even recognize it anymore. So the band is Sales, all caps, S-A-L-E-S, a band out of Orlando, Florida. It's a duo with a track called Off and On. that you make those statements about hometown because that's actually going to come up in the triloquy a mm. little bit but you know even even just before we get there that that is an aspect of this that you you threw in there that you could never see yourself going back to your hometown it mm. has me thinking about the the khaki king piece that was premiered by aco called modern yesterdays the way in which we think about our yesterdays differently based on different events that happened in our life or that happened to the world. In the case of uh, the Peace Modern yesterday, it was really uh, tying a connection with uh, the pandemic, with COVID mm. and the difference in the way that we think about the past. But I, I, I still think that applies to what you were saying there. I mean, why? I, I wonder what you do with those thoughts of you can never move back to your hometown. Is it just a matter of fact thing? Is it something that you toil over? I, I wonder, well, why is it even something that you, you think about? I can't help it. Hmm. And I think that you'll get there too. I mean, because I um, look, I, I love the city of Memphis, but I, I promise you I'm not moving back down there. And I and there's no dissonance for me sure. in that statement. There's a word for it, uh, hireth or something like that, mm -hmm. which is the longing for a past that cannot be isn't there anymore cannot be achieved again yeah and everybody's going to have that everybody's going to go through it and i love the way that sales built this song the simplicity of it is great but the lyrics are sort of mad libs you know they they she gives you a fragment of a sentence and you can complete it mm -hmm. on your own you know and and create your own adventure along with this song and it all tied up in this feeling of slipping through these streets that are vaguely familiar, mm -hmm. unrecognized. And I kind of liked it. Yeah. But I could never be there long term. Yeah. I can never go back. Well, I, yeah, I, I know what you mean. But again, for me, that is not dissonant because it's not only the physical place, it's the people. Yeah. And it's also the time, you know, it is. When, when I was running around Memphis as a, a 22 year old, I, I could do that, but I wouldn't be doing that, you know, the, doing some of the things that I was not that it was illegal or nothing, but staying up until four or five, six a.m. after, you know, being out all night and bar hopping. That, that's just not my gospel. That's not my story anymore. <laughs> so I think those are ingredients <laughs> in the past that I just recognized in myself not being there you know I'm, I'm not that person so what is there to miss you know i i evolve we all evolve as people just 
as places and, and our relationships with, with places do. I could do it if I had two days off after and a complete change of blood. See, we don't have that. So, <laughs> But anyway, sales, a, a tune called Off and On. That's a really good pick there. Thanks. All right. Well, we are moving into the third movement this week. I have the honor of sharing with you my conversation with Thea Musgrave and her husband, Peter Mark. It was such a, a pleasure to just dialogue with them and to get some perspective into a living composer who's been around for a little while. I'm going to read a little bit about Thea Musgrave here on her website, born in 1928. Mm. It says, rich and powerful musical language and a strong sense of drama have made Scottish-American composer Thea Musgrave one of the most respected and exciting contemporary composers in the Western world. She's written everything from solo oboe pieces to piano works, chamber music. She has a couple operas that we talk about in our uh uh, discussion, uh, Mary Queen of Scots, and uh, a Harriet Tubman-themed opera, Harriet, the woman called Moses. So uh, all sorts of music. We talk about how she got to the music, who some of her teachers and uh, influencers are, and she gives a little advice to the next generation of composers. So I'm, I'm very excited to share this conversation uh, with y'all to get us into it. I wanted to uh, highlight one of her many works. This is the tail end of her clarinet concerto, a really exciting work performed here by the the BBC Scottish Symphony Orchestra to get us into my conversation with Thea Musgrave. Hope you all enjoy. I was born in Scotland and brought up there and went to university there. But then I went off to Paris to study. And then after that, I didn't settle back in Scotland because in those days, you really had to be in London to make musical contacts. And, and one of the things I learned was that in this profession, you really have to know people and you have to know people who are doing things and other composers and so I settled back in London until that, uh, by an extraordinary chance, a, a colleague of mine was teaching in Santa Barbara in California and said, would I like to come and replace him when he went on a sabbatical for three months? And that's how I met my husband, because I came to uh, California. I wasn't husband hunting, but I met my husband. <laughs> and a little later, we married, and we've now just celebrated our 50th wedding anniversary. Congratulations. Yeah. Wow. <laughs> so that's very proud of. I can't help but to ask, with your having lived in so many different places, did that have an impact on your music? Um, not really, except sometimes the, the subjects that I would write about uh, would happen, which it wouldn't have happened otherwise. But the way I write music is, and, and who I am, I think everybody really is what they are in their childhood. And as they grow up, that's what comes forward and, and, and that's what informs what they do and the chances that they take, uh, I think. But of course, as you go to other countries and meet other people, you learn from them also. So that does have some impact. But your basic who you are, I think, is who you are as a kid 
And, and then you nurture that, and it grow, hopefully it grows. I mean, some people are, are, are not lucky, and, and it, for various reasons it can't grow. But most people, I think, grow as they learn things and have new experiences, meet new people, go to other countries, and so on and so on. So I wonder if you'll speak to that subject as it relates to yourself. What was your childhood like, and when did you get exposed to music for the first time, if you can remember? Music? came very early in my life. I remember my very first piano lesson, because that's really where I got into music. And I went into the little room at the primary school that I attended. I think I was age five or six, something like that, very young. And the music teacher said there was an upright piano there and with a seat in front of it. And she said, come, darling. Uh, why don't you stand on this seat? And I said, thought, that's weird. <laughs> but I got up and stood on the seat. And then she opened the lid of the piano and said, why, why don't you just look down inside the piano? And she started to play. So, of course, I saw all the hammers going and hitting the strings. I thought that was just fabulous. And I think that what got me started. The next thing she did was also very interesting because she said, she, she taught me, and when I was really just beginning, she managed to find some piano duets where she would play something very complicated and I would be playing something very simple underneath. But because it was all on the same piano, I thought it was me playing, you know. So I thought that was great. And the other thing with piano duets, which I think you'll find interesting, is that I was actually in a boarding school uh, during during the World War II. Um, I think really my mother needed to have some time, and she worked for the Red Cross, so she sent me off to this excellent boarding school, and I'm very glad that that happened. But anyway, one of the things that happened was the music teacher played piano duets with me, and she played piano duets of the Beethoven symphonies. So... In those days, there was no way of going to a concert. You know, the World War II was raging around, and and certainly not at school. And one didn't really have seed. One certainly didn't have CDs. One had very old things, which went to you know, one record lasted maybe two minutes or three minutes or something, not like nowadays. And so I learned the Beethoven symphonies by playing them on piano duet. So when I heard them for real, that, oh boy, was that exciting. And, but I had the, the, I played them. So I had them in my fingers. It was very, very interesting. So when did a love for playing translate into a love for creating music? Well, I didn't think I was going to become a composer. I did, I did create one or two things in my teens, 15, 16, but not seriously. I was going to go to medical school, and I wasn't going to be a GP. No, no. I was going to discover, you know, the arrogance of youth and what you're (laughs) going to do. I decided I was going to discover the cures for all the diseases. You know, cancer, TB, AIDS hadn't happened, but undoubtedly that as well. And, and, But I hadn't done the right subjects at school. I hadn't done enough of the scientific subjects. So I was back in Edinburgh, and I went to the university, and I went into the pre-med course, 
just for one term to catch up on all the stuff that I should have known and didn't know. But it so happens in Edinburgh that the music school is absolutely adjacent to the medical school and the rest of the university is way off, somewhere quite different. And I found myself always going into the music school. I found what was going on there. I mean, I wasn't supposed to be there, but I just went and nosed around and thought this was fascinating. And so eventually I said to my music teacher, you know, I'm, I'm really interested in this. Maybe I, I can switch over. And she said, well, the trouble is this, that if you're a bad doctor, you get struck off the list so you can't do any harm. And that doesn't happen in music. But, <laughs> you know, if I wasn't any good, I would do a lot of damage. <laughs> I wonder if you could talk about some of your uh, musical mentors and teachers along the way, the people who helped make your career possible. Well, I was very lucky. Right from the very beginning, I had this teacher that made me look at the hammers playing. Right. Very imaginative, that. And then I played a, a stringed instrument very badly because I never had time to practice. But they made this was in Edinburgh. This school made all those students, however bad, play in an orchestra. So there was a, a beginner's orchestra and then one that was more reasonable for people who could actually play something. So right from the beginning, I had the chance of playing in an orchestra, however bad it was, and the feeling of playing with other people and doing it together. And I, I never did this professionally because I was way, 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 way back, not nearly good enough. but. I had the, the sort of experience of doing that. And I wish that that happened for, for everybody, for all students, whether they're going to be musicians or not, because I think it's a wonderful experience to all be playing together, you know, under hopefully a, a sympathetic and good conductor, that you have another way of communicating. And I don't think it happens, which is, which is too bad. But you can be taught by all sorts of people, not just teachers, but just life can teach you. And events that happen can teach you. you if you're open to experiencing the thing, and sometimes bad experiences actually can make you a good lesson of, you know, not to do that again, or how to avoid certain things, or what something that may be good out of it that then you can concentrate on. I love how you put that, how life can be a teacher. Are there any life events or, or things that you experience that you would count among the most impactful to your career as a composer? Oh, well, there are all sorts of things. <laughs> I don't even know where to, where to start. Um, but I'll tell you something that was, had a great impact on me. It's not maybe not quite life, but it's this. I had some lessons to uh, about conducting, because I was going to have to conduct a chamber music piece up in Scotland, and I had never conducted before, so I got somebody to teach me. And as a probably as a result of that one night, and I remember it vividly to this day, it happened in the 1960s, so we're talking a long, long time ago, I had this dream that I was conducting a big orchestra, and all of a sudden, one of the players stood up and defied me. <laughs> and I just sort of signaled, sit down, and, and, and nothing happened. He just played, and, 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 and then I woke up and started to laugh. 
And that night I went out with some friends, I told them this dream, and, and we all laughed. Well, here's the extraordinary thing. The very next morning, I mean, literally the very next morning, a letter arrived from Birmingham in England saying, would I like to write a piece for the Birmingham Symphony Orchestra? Well, what happened? I wrote my concerto for orchestra, where two-thirds of the way through, the clarinet player stands up to defy the conductor. <laughs> and I worked out a sort of way of doing this and also had to work out a way of notating it so it was made sense and everything. And from that moment on, I decided, or I had started to have ideas of how to dramatize the orchestra in rather an unusual way. And that way is certainly what the clarinet does is rather unusual. But then I wrote a clarinet concerto, and where the clarinet player stands in the normal place to start with beside the conductor. But then, like a sort of concerto grosso, he moves over to stage left and plays with that group of instruments who are sitting there. Then he moves back of the stage along to stage right and plays with another group of instruments and so on. So he like moves around the stage to play with various other instruments in more soloistic fashion. The conductor takes care of the whole orchestra, but he is giving cues to the other players. So it's a kind of divided responsibility. And then in another concerto I worked, worked, worked with very famous horn player, Barry Tuckwell. Um, I don't know if you know him, but he was very famous in England at that time. And I wrote him a concerto. And so again, he stands in the normal place, but halfway through the work, he has a cadenza, not at the end where you normally have a cadenza, but in the middle. And in that cadenza, the horn players of the orchestra one stays behind, but the other three go out into the audience. So the one there, one left, one right, and one right at the back. So that as if he is surrounded by these four horn players, one behind him, one to his left, one to his right, and one way back. Now, when you write like that, with that kind of distance, it's very difficult to stay exactly together because, there's, you know, it, with, with, the, with the distance, it sort of slows down and you don't hear... In this, exactly in the same beat, particularly in a fast tempo. So I wrote it kind of like a cadenza, which is played freely. You know, it has the same kind of basic tempo, but it's free. And then I had to find a way of notating this that was simple to do and simple to pick up and wouldn't take a lot of time to explore because there's never enough time in an orchestra rehearsal. So I had to be very practical. And I think that's one thing my Scottish heritage does, is that we are trained to be practical, as well as save money, of course. <laughs> it sounds like even with your orchestral works, there are theatrical aspects about them. It must be the case you always hoped to write for opera. Well, yeah, absolutely. I like dramatizing the orchestra. And sometimes I have, they're based on pictures. and. Sometimes, you know, so I hope that the pictures can be put into the program so people can see them. But recently, I wrote a trumpet concerto for the wonderful Alison Balsam, who is, I don't know if you know her, but she yeah. is absolutely fabulous. And it started off in Birmingham, another, 
another commission from Birmingham Symphony, you know, 50 years later, 40 years later. And, but we also had a performance at the Hollywood Bowl. Now, this work is based on pictures by a sheer chance. And in the Hollywood Bowl, which does not have a very good acoustic as such, and the orchestra of the Elliot Phil has done wonderful things by using mics and everything to offset that. You know, it's, it's on a big hill, which is just earth, which does not actually send the sound out very, very easily. But it's absolutely enormous, and I think it can seat, what, 17,000 people or something like that? I mean, it's gigantic. So when you're sitting in the audience, you're looking down at the audience, and it's like a little tiny postcard miles away. <laughs> so what they have are huge screens, a couple of great big screens where they are showing the orchestra so that it looks like a kind of a normal size, what you would normally see in a concert hall. And so I said, well, that, that's great, but can we also show these pictures on these screens at certain moments? Not the whole time, but just a little bit, and then obviously go back to looking at the orchestra and so on, which they did. So it was, it was fabulous. So, you know, then the drama can, can build. <laughs> I want to talk about two of uh, your operas and the people that you highlight in them. The first, Mary, Queen of Scots. I have to say, that's not a story that I'm terribly familiar with. I, I wonder if you could talk a little bit about what inspired you about this historical figure enough to write an opera. Well, what the, the, there's another opera about Mary, Queen of Scots, Maria Stuarda, but it's about later in her life when she was a prisoner and, and all that. And I thought it would be interesting to look at Mary's early life and what happened. And so I, I looked at the story and thought it was absolutely fascinating. And, and so it's when she first comes back from France where she had been uh, married to the Dauphin. And so she lived several years in Paris and came back to Edinburgh and and her life then and what happened and, and why it happened. So it ends actually very tragically. Um, but what, what's funny is that she had a half-brother who really wanted to be in charge. And uh, she, so they had sort of quarrels. And then she went to, wanted to marry Bothwell. And I said to her, to Mary, you know, as I was working, I said, Mary, don't marry Bothwell. You know, it's a very bad idea. Well, she didn't take my advice. and disastrous results so the end and then she had a kid well the end of the opera what happens is she has to leave and so she comes under house arrest with elizabeth her her cousin and she looks back at the child her child that she has left behind and a portcullis comes down so she is totally separated from her kid now it's that child several years later that unites the kingdoms of England and Scotland. James VI of Scotland and James I of England is the same person. That's her son. What has been reaction to the depiction of, of this story in an operatic form? I'm sure there are uh, people in theater who have thought about it, maybe even filmmakers, but for opera audiences, what have you experienced as the, uh, the impact or the reaction? Well, the thing is, as, as an opera composer, you have to know how to tell a good story, whether it's accurate or not. 
<laughs> doesn't really matter very much <laughs> I mean, to most people. Um, mine is fairly accurate. Not completely, but fairly accurate. When you're writing opera, you're not bothered so much by accuracy as telling a really good story and, above all, to make wonderful music if you possibly can. And so you draw in the people. Because to hear a wonderful singer sing something, and it, it can really grab you, you know, whatever they're talking about, that's what grabs you and what grab people, as, as, as you can see when you go to an opera and sit in the opera house. If the singing is really wonderful, people are grabbed. And um, that's exciting. Wow, wow. Well, you've uh, mentioned Birmingham a few times. I actually grew up not too far from a city that we call Birmingham, a very different oh, <laughs> type of place. Right. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and in that part of the world, certainly, you know, where I grew up, the story of Harriet Tubman is much more well-known and much more familiar. I wonder if Harriet Tubman's story was one uh, that you knew way back in Europe, or did you learn it when you came to the United States? What's your history with knowing her story? I didn't know her story. I'd never heard of her until I came to the States. I married Peter, and for a while we lived in England, London, and then up in Manchester, and we came in 1975, uh, where he started to be in charge of the Virginia Opera. It wasn't quite the first production that he did, but very, very close to the beginning. So he has been doing, he did that for nearly 40 years, 36 or 37, I think, and ran this opera company and did all sorts of uh, productions. Um, I don't remember where I heard about Harriet Tubman. I had never even heard the name. But then I did hear the name, and very interesting, uh, at some point, Peter and I drove up the eastern shore, and we found the house where she was enslaved. Wow. You couldn't see it close up because the road went, and then there was a little notice, this is where Harriet Tubman lived. And we looked across a long field, I mean a big field, and then there was a, a wood of some trees. And just beyond that, you saw not a big mansion, he, the, the owner was not a great big real estate person, you know. It was it was a small house, so he he was a slave owner, and then it was very interesting because I think obviously I think slavery is is a horrendous, I mean horrendous thing to have happened, but within that, there are some masters I think who behaved decently to their slaves and, and looked after them, and some who were absolutely horrible. So in order to make a good story, I made this master, um, well, I don't know what I can say decent, but he actually treated his people with, with some sympathy and, and looked after them. But the son was an absolute nightmare, so therefore the story hinged on that as, as, as well. And it was very interesting because when it was done in the chamber music version in New York, apparently one of the cast said, wanted Harriet to turn around when, when she was fleeing to safety. Mm -hmm. And she wanted, he or she, I'm not sure which, wanted to, Harriet to turn around and shoot the slave catchers. I understand the anger, but Harriet did not do that. I said, you can't do that because Harriet in history 
It would not be true. And what would have happened had she done that? She would have had to stay in Canada for the rest of her life. She would be under suspicion of murder. Whereas what happened in real life, which I didn't do in the opera, I finished the opera about then, Harriet actually came back into America and fought with the Yankees against the, the slave catchers in, in, in the South. So she wouldn't have been able to do that. But very interesting to deal with this person's anger at what happened. How do you react to the emotions that people bring to this story? I'm sure there are even some people who couldn't even sit through the opera for, for the reality of you know, their trauma, our shared trauma, I'll say. Yeah. Well, we had a wonderful cast, and which, which uh, Peter brought in. And, and what actually Cynthia Heyman did for Harriet, who is a wonderful young singer, but she was not known at that time. She was just really starting her career. Mm. And right about three or four or five days before we opened, we had a rehearsal. She slipped and fell. And she went up to the stage director said, I will sue you if you don't let me go on. And he said, well, you know, I, I don't know what to do. So he, she had to have a cast and crutches. And so then what we decided to do, well, the stage director said, we will bring in a dancer. We will have an alter ego. So what happened was we did our costume people quickly built a costume for this dancer that arrived, and that I remember one moment particularly, Harriet was being chased by slave catchers, so with crutches there was absolutely no way of doing that. So I remember Cynthia stood stage left and with her crutches and passed her hat to the dancer and then watched, and the dancer did all the right things and fled from the slave catchers, and just as she exited, she passed the hat back to Harriet. Well, there was one person in the audience who came up to say to Peter, she thought that was wonderful. She thought it was a, a metaphor for slavery, that if you were enslaved, it was as if you had crutches because mm. you couldn't do all the things that you should be able to do. I thought that was beautiful. I mean, that thought was beautiful. Not that slavery is beautiful, but the fact that she thought of that metaphor was beautiful. Yeah, Garrett, I, I want to pipe in here because she didn't quite answer your question. And Thea was with me at the opera company for like 35, 36 years, but she uh, was just coming out of a Porgy and Bess production and I remember there were so many gifted black artists who were singing. And Thea thought, well, this is marvelous and the piece is great, but these are not proper role models for black people. Mm. And so that's part of the motivation that led to Harriet. Uh, the other thing was... Let that, me just say one thing here. Sure. What One of the things that moved me... Uh, about the Underground Railroad, which I then learned about, was that growing up through World War II, as an, and I was just old enough to begin to realize, I was, what, 11 or something when it started, so just begin to be old enough to realize the horror of it. And then later, during the war, 
soldiers, um, air pilots who were shot down found an underground railroad to get through France into Spain and then back to England. So the underground railroad for me meant that. Mm, and wow. I learned the underground railroad is what Harriet used and where I think the term was invented, you know, to get to Canada and to escape slavery. So that came kind of came together. Thea always responds in all of her operas to very important human situations that are universal, even though, of course, in an opera, you have to make them specific. Whether it's a Christmas carol and the whole conversion of a person who was insensitive to other people, mm -hmm. who eventually unders understood what he was missing in life. Mary, Queen of Scots, is really a power struggle between a half-brother and a sister because she had the crown, but he thought he should be the rightful person. And of course, she was a woman, and he thought he could just push her aside and do what he wanted to do. And she had to find herself and stand alone. That is the tragedy and the beauty of uh, Mary, Queen of Scots, because it's tragic at the end. But because of the situation for women, there was no alternative. None of the men in her life were trustworthy. So that's one thing. And that, but you asked how the audiences reacted to this. Well, we went to from four performances in a hall of 830 seats to five performances just for that opera, Mary Queen of Scots. Oh. And it came to America, the American premiere. Premier. It had started yeah. in the Edinburgh Festival. And people were had seen that and were thrilled, and therefore they really bought tickets for the Harriet the Woman Called Moses. Now, the chorus, I had always, since I came to the Virginia Opera, had integrated choruses and casts. And so in Harriet the Woman Called Moses, the slaves had to be African-American. I didn't mix them because there were also the whites had to be white in that what's really interesting, Garrett, and I don't know that this would be possible uh, today, but Thea's original thought was to have the races do the opposite race. Plantation owners would be all black and the slaves would be all white. But as it was, we went far as far as we could go in the South <laughs> for this. And what was amazing is members of the white chorus protested to me, why couldn't they be slaves? And in other words, they, they said to me, Peter, you put African-Americans into the royal circles in Marriage of Figaro and the Verity operas. Why can't you put whites into black? I said, because those operas are not about race. This opera is about the experience, the humiliating experience of slavery and the cruelty. And you can't mix the message. So but also what happened was they said, you haven't used the N word. 
Mm -hmm. I said, no, I, I really did not want to use that word. Well, we think you should, they mm -hmm. said. This is the black chorus. So A southern black chorus a southern in black Virginia. Chorus. Wow. And so I said, well, I'll, uh, I'll put it in in one place, which I did. And so that was because of them. When it was done in New York in the chamber music version, they took it out. Because it was offensive and also because... It is offensive. The cult, of course it's offensive. Yeah, that's why she didn't put I it didn't in the first it. place. I didn't use it. But they thought... They it, said it should be used because it is used and still is today, as far as I know. You know, it's interesting because a lot of the chorus in Virginia, their parents and grandparents lived in that whole system. And so that they weren't that far away. And after all, Virginia, you know, had into uh, segregated schools right up until the mid 50s. And yeah. we're talking about something that's only happening 25 years, 30 years later. Right. So it was astounding. But I think it was a very good example of how opera, by being both specific and universal, addresses issues that may be historic, but have great meaning for the audience yeah. of today. Has Harriet had performances in Europe? Was it done in Europe? Or I'm I thinking of no, Simon I, Bolivar. No, no I don't think so. It seems like, you know, Mary Queen of Scots in the United States is a very different subject as a Harriet Tubman-inspired opera in Europe. There were scenes with opera with piano accompaniment done at the South Bank Centre in London, but that was just a few arias, so it's not the, not the work. In 2023, we're still talking about a lack of women composers in, in the field. I wonder, Thea, if you could speak to whether or not you see progress based on your experience, you know, as a woman and composer for all these years. Um, well, and also women conductors. It so happens in the last few years, I have met some fabulous women conductors and who I've worked with. Because, you know, I work with conductors. Other composers have been my students, mm -hmm. some, of, some of them. And some of them have been wonderful. And it, it's, it's difficult for anybody, male students as well as women students, to get performances. Now, here's where it's lucky that I'm British. So I see British when I mean the mm. whole island, Scottish, Welsh, Irish, and English. And that is that the BBC orchestras, I hope they still do it, but when I was just coming back from Paris and beginning to write some orchestral pieces, the BBC orchestras did them. And during, you know, the time I was still living, you know, before I married Peter came to America, they did. They helped young composers with excellent conductors. You know the name Colin Davis? Sure. Colin Davis is a British conductor who conducted a lot in this country. When I first met him, he and his wife lived on the street. So, you know, I had them for dinner. We were kind of friends. But anyway, he was the conductor for the BBC's Scottish Symphony Orchestra. And he conducted, I think he's the first conductor who conducted one of my orchestra pieces. Now, that's when you learn. It's only when you get, begin to get practical experience of having an opera done, even more difficult than getting an orchestra work done, because an orchestra work is usually 15, 20 minutes, 10, an opera is an evening, you know, with production and all the rest of it. So that's even harder. 
So I was very lucky that the BBC Scottish did some of my orchestral works and that the Edinburgh Festival put on Mary Queen of Scots. With, wow. When I was conducting, I had ears in those days, fortunately. <laughs> lost them now. You but, still have your ears, so. <laughs> yeah, I have my ears in. <laughs> and I can turn them off if I want, <laughs> which is also um, very yeah, I'm sure that's great. <laughs> well, you've been so generous with your time. The last question that I wanted to ask you, if you had any words of guidance for today's emerging composer, listening to this are 16, 17, even 20-year-old people who want to begin a career as a composer. What are your words to them? What do I want to say to them? Find yourself a really good teacher, but also be willing to learn from all sorts of other people and places. For instance, if you're in a conservatory or university, make friends with the good performers and pick their brains mercilessly, <laughs> number one. Number two, the whole thing about Sibelius, you know what I mean by Sibelius, that you Probably. can write on the computer and all that stuff, that came in when I was in my 70s. So oh. I said, my students, I'm not going to do that. And the person who I have doing inputting, he said, you're the last person on the planet who uses basic pen and paper. Nobody does that anymore, but you do. And so I said to my students, you'll have to learn this new technique because it does sound very good and very interesting and, and, and you can send stuff from, you know, I can send stuff from here to Edinburgh. How the hell all that stuff goes through the air and arrives in Edinburgh, you know, the details on one page and you send 70 pages and a minute later it's in Edinburgh. You know, it, it's incredible. And pretty. However, I said, it does not teach you how to write for an orchestra. Mm. You have to learn that separately and you make use of this wonderful new technique for, you know, the convenience of making parts and sending it and so on. It does not teach you how to write for an orchestra. And so uh, that's, that was my message to them. Get a good teacher. There from Harriet, the woman called Moses by Thea Musgrave. Scott, I found it so uh, impactful, just very intriguing to think about the idea of a woman who, because of where she's from, because of her culture, didn't learn about Harriet Tubman, at least not in the way that we do here in the United sure. States, and then to come over here and to be so inspired by the story to write an opera. There there must be so many other versions of that in other countries and in other contexts. You know, I'm, I'm sure there are freedom fighters in yeah. India, you know, whose names we'll never know or across the African continent. So for Thea Musgrave to have that 
relationship with the story of Harriet Tubman, I think is is really something to it think is. about. Something that uh, she talked about in our conversation was the fact that because of the history, because of of what that era in American history is, there are certain you know uncomfortable, problematic things. You know, she wasn't initially fond of the idea of writing an opera where she had to portray black people as slaves, you know, and, and she was encouraged, she says, by black people to be historically accurate just to make the impact and the and the point of, of that history be known. Something else that she spoke to was the fact that she did not want to incorporate the N-word in the opera. And while there are some people who thought for historical accuracy or, or whatever or historical impact that it should be included. I wonder, you know, as as someone who uh, writes and, and has uh, written things, how you would respond to that. If you were writing something that dealt with racism or America's past and you were being pressured by people of color, by black people to really stick to these stories and include things like the N-word or, or some of these, you know, ugly things, what would you do? How would you react to that as a as a creator? Define pressure. Saying are they standing around me and closing in? May, or maybe or am I getting dragged online? What? Or they're saying we're not going to perform this if you're trying to whitewash it or make it more comfortable. You know, any any that there are a number of ways that I think that pressure could manifest. Mm. Uh, I would not. I'm I'm not going to write it. Yeah, I just won't. Mm-hmm. Um, it's it's not true to me. I would not feel right about it. I would not feel good about it. And I am trying to put myself first a little bit these days. Yeah. And so I would say maybe you should engage another writer. You say, y'all not going to have me out here on slip disc. (laughs) No, 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 no. No. All right, we're getting into the uh, finale here. So I, uh, uh, like I said, it's going to be sort of a a birthday-themed finale. Mm -hmm. It's funny. So I was going online and, you know, sort of looking at some of the the music that was big during my birth year and in some cases even my birth month and birth year. I found a playlist on uh, Apple Music and the first tune on it was Bad by Michael Jackson. And I'm like, oh, okay. So, you know, this this is the era that I was born into. You know, this speaks to, you know, my uh uh you know spirit and all that stuff. I'm I'm bad, I, I'm a rebel. And then I remember the opening lyrics, your butt is mine. Your I'm butt like, is oh, mine. okay. So maybe art imitates life. Anyway. <laughs> oh no. <laughs> but among the other tunes that was popular, uh, that were hits in 1987, was one of my favorites by Janet Jackson, a, a tune called Let's Wait a While. You know, we don't always talk about Janet Jackson when we talk about women's history, but she did it. She was one of the stars and mm-hmm. she created beautiful tunes like this. So we're going to listen to a little bit of it to get us into the final movement. There's something I want to tell you. There's something I think that you should know. It's not that I shouldn't really love you. Let's take it slow. When we get to know each other and we're both
I know you like to get into your melancholic bag a lot, but you know, tunes like that I love because of the softness of it and not just dynamics, but the spirit of softness. You know, in in a Western classical music, we talk about how difficult it is to play very softly and intentionally as opposed to loud and, and mm-hmm. big and bold. Mm-hmm. That's something that I just draw out of that. I just love that soft spirit of it. It's very intentional. One of my one of my faves. Mm. And you know, it hasn't been a fave since 1987, you know, because I wasn't I, I wasn't listening to music as a baby, not like that. But I'm just very proud that that is the you know music of my birth era. Just shout out to Janet Jackson. You I know what song that. was number one on my birthday? What's that? In the Summertime by Mungo Jerry. I don't think I know it. In the summertime when the weather was high. Oh, you can right, right. Up so you had more of a whimsical sort of entry into the world. I did. <laughs> anyway, we're here in the uh, final movement where we're going to talk a bit. So... I was uh, chanting this morning and thinking about it being my birthday. And the question that came into my mind was, why was I born? What was I born to do? What's my purpose? Do you ever get into deep corners in your mind thinking about questions like that? Of course. Of course. I'm 53. (laughs) You want to talk about nostalgia or me getting into my melancholic bag? Mm -hmm. Just wait. Just wait, tack another 17 years on when you're my age and you're going to start hearing those songs and you're going to go, oh man, oh, Oh, play it again. Mm -hmm. And you're just going to wash yourself. You're just going to, you're just going to wallow in all that. Mm -hmm. Just wait. Okay. Okay. Well, in, in thinking about that question, what was I born to do? Why am I here? Uh, You know, with the way, the crazy way my mind works, I started to think about the movements of life. So, and comparing that to maybe a, a symphony. So, I thought about the first movement, maybe the the first third of a person's life being where you really establish yourself, you gain some life experience, you fall in love, you experience heartbreak, you know, loss of loved ones, you prove yourself professionally and, and climb the ladder and do all of that. That's sort of the work of that first movement, that first third of life. Let's jump to the end, that final movement. If we're thinking about four movements of life is after you're gone, but you have the impact there. The memory of your work is there. The the shadows, your legacy. the reverberations, the legacy is there. Okay. That third movement, if we're moving backwards, is sort of the elder era. You know, you're sitting on the rocking chair. You're telling the youngsters what happened before they were born. You're preserving history. You're being that teacher, that sage. You know, that's what happens, you know, in that final third of your life. And I feel like as I enter or have entered maybe the second movement of my life, the second third of, of my life. I think about what is the use of that. And I think about implementation. I think about actually doing the work that you spent the first movement of your life proving that you, you know, could could do or were born to do. This idea of persevering through challenge and all the the hurdles of life based on the life experience you got in your 20s and in early 30s. What's your reaction to a split up segmentation of life? In that way, I would still say that you're in the second movement of your life. You haven't hit that that final that final stage yet, but well, what, what, I wonder what comes to mind for you. I'm not a three movement symphony. Okay, um, I'm I'm definitely a four or five movement symphony. Okay, because I feel like right now I'm getting to the end of the scherzo movement. Mm. Um, I have done my running. Sure, <laughs> and uh, it's it's time 
to move into the next movement, which I hope will be more waltz tempo, perhaps. Okay. <laughs> you said slow, the, but not too slow. Right. You know, <laughs> still in the game, but, you know. Just Adagio a, amon non troppo. <laughs> what you said. But uh, I do believe what you're talking about. Um, that you hit certain markers. You know, our parents might say it's your development of maturity. Right. You know, you hit different things with realizations, and it only comes through the years, man. Um, I'm going to be 53 in a couple months. Just wait, it's going to happen to you. Yeah, right? uh, hopefully. It doesn't get to happen for everybody, you know. No, I don't so mean I, aging. So I, only... I, just, I just mean you're going to be able to look back at mo more than three different marks in your life. Oh, sure, sure. Yeah, I, 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 and of course, I have plenty more to learn and grow, but at this point in my life, I can't help but to think about that because, and all of this is really a frame, uh, a container for what I actually want to talk about. So I've been doing work uh, as a, a consultant um, and just a, a community partner uh, with the Minnesota Orchestra. There's a time in my life when just being in the space would have been enough. For me, like I, I can tell people I'm doing it if I want to put that on my resume, whatever, it's fine. But now that I'm in my second movement of my life, the implementation, the actually doing the work, it's hard for me, even with some of the relationships that I've built, to not name certain things and to be critical about certain things. Long story short, there's a piece of music that um, I went to a reading for, uh, the, the first reading of a new commission by the Minnesota Orchestra that is their response to the murder of George Floyd and, mm -hmm. and this work that you know really digs into that, that contemporary history and the spirit and the feelings and all of that stuff. But the creators are not from the Twin Cities. Now, that isn't to say that anyone living anywhere didn't have an experience in May of 2020 of because it was certainly a national and global thing. But I can't help but to feel a way when I see collaborators on stage who weren't here for the for the blocked off roads and weren't here for the police station on fire and the army tanks lined up on the best the so-called best neighborhoods in the in the Twin Cities. He's trying to get home at midnight when yeah, there's a vacuum of any sort of. <laughs> I, I I love that again. The Minnesota Orchestra has done this type of work, and I value the partnerships and the trust that I've uh, earned with them. I think with that trust, with with that friendship, is an even deeper obligation to implement to to do the work. And for me, doing the work is coming to the conversation both internally, you know, with them and externally here, the importance of those local figures. When we talk about anything, any commission, any opportunity to connect the work of an arts institution to its community, I believe there has to be that local aspect all the way down to the people who do it. Of course, one of the symptoms of so-called classical music is that the the siphon is, is so thin People have to move to where the work is. I'm not from here. Mm -hmm. You're not from here. You know, mm -hmm. so that that isn't, you know, to completely cancel out transplants. But I think there's also something about the power of the hometown hero in those positions, even from the radio perspective. Mm -hmm. Don't you think that there's something to being the hometown guy that gets to be the uh ambassador for an arts organization, the person who gets to present music or present the arts in a in a certain way. I, mm -hmm. I, I believe in collaborating broadly, but it's hard for me, especially when you consider a situation like the murder of George Floyd, it's hard for me not to wish 
that collaborators, creators were hometown. And I feel weird calling something like that out again because of the the trust and the rapport that I've built with that institution. But it just sticks out of my mind so much. I feel like it's a part of my purpose to do that, to, to mm-hmm. name things like that. Sure. Um, I was that guy for 14 years. The hometown KB. hero, yeah. Well, I'm not going to say hero, just I, I was... Uh, doing a lot of commercials. I was on the radio, so I was in doing community theater. So I was pretty easily recognized at that in that era. Yeah, and um, we were all about locality. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, keeping everything within uh, a certain radius. I like Carlos Simon's music. I'm glad to see him getting work, and I and I'm I will look forward to hearing that music. Yeah. However not knowing the machinations and the inner workings of how they came to that decision, uh, you're not alone. I've talked to people who said, who use the word misfire in, in associate. And, and again, they're supporters. They will go and hear it. Yeah. However, there are people right here that experienced it uh, in, in real time that could have been engaged for who, are, who are just as qualified for something like that and mm-hmm. again the difficulty is that i respect all parties involved I, I really honestly do and i honor our hometown heroes mm-hmm. who i think we need to be speaking up for when it comes to things like this so you know this isn't me uh throwing knives at anyone like i do no. anna trepko no. <laughs> but what this is me doing is just asking people to think about the ingredient, the variable of hometown personnel, hometown creators, hometown uh, uh, composers in these sort of community-centric events. Mm -hmm. I understand that classical musicians, we got to go for the work is. Maybe the charge for classical musicians is to actually engage the community and not treat your hometown, as someone said on uh, Twitter, not treat where you're working just as something that goes along with the work. I just happen to be here, so this is where I am. No, actually engaging the community, learning learning about the culture, connecting with artists who have spent their whole life in a place. And maybe that can be, you know, one of the bridges that can be built between arts organization and broader community. Mm. Maybe there are folks who would never go see the Minnesota Orchestra unless their cousin, their neighbor, you know, somebody that they know from social media has the opportunity to have something performed and and platformed. Maybe that will be enough to get somebody into that hall for the first time and maybe even enough to get them to to come back. We can talk about programming, we can talk about outreach, we can talk about DEI, but I think the more that arts organizations can have the hometown people in the space, the better. Mm-hmm. And to loop that back around, you know, to being born and and purpose and all of those things. The as the the older I get, the more I uh dive into my Buddhist practice, the more that I just envision what a decolonized classical music ecosystem could be, the more that I have to balance this calling things out, being fiery, being unapologetic, and being heard, maintaining rapport, actually having the opportunity to make change because I'm not just throwing knives, I'm calling people in instead mm. of just calling them out. I guess that's my my nice soft, again, senora 
era uh, birthday message for so today. So if you're senora, that would make me abuela. And I don't know if I'm up Oh, abuela that. era. Okay. I'm not, I'm not ready How for that. How about abuelita era? <laughs> Little grandma. Anyway, thank you so much, everyone, for listening and for spending this time with us. You are always so appreciated. Thanks again for all of your warm wishes, and we will both see you again next week. 